0: everyone and welcome to the cinematic schematic the official podcast of thecinemetropolis.com your home to thoughtful conversations on film i'm your host caleb masters and today we can't help but look at ethan Hawke's black balloons and get lost in his mesmerizing performance it's almost as intoxicating as knockout gas that's right ladies and gentlemen we are reviewing the black phone from director scott derrickson and writer c robert cargill and we're going to start with an icebreaker question before jumping into a spoiler-free review and verdict of the film. And then we'll close out the show by going into an in-depth spoiler discussion where we really get into all the treats this movie has to offer. I'm super excited to, to introduce today's guest. First and foremost, LaRon Chapman. We're back to a horror movie, finally. Sadly, we you and I, due to Life Things, missed Doctor Strange, which is a, sort of a Marvel Horror movie, kind of. I'm happy to have you back on for The Black Phone.
1: I hope they left something for October because I feel like we're getting spoiled right now. Having, you know, I'm, I think I'm dealing, my, I'm showing my hand right now, but yes, a good horror film way before october hopefully there's something left for us then
0: hopefully there's more to hang on for halloween ends than you know halloween kills yeah Yeah. hopefully hopefully but i'm so excited to be joined by a first-time guest here matt donato he's an la-based film critic currently published on ign slash film fangoria bloody disgusting and many other publications around the web he's also a member of the critics choice association and the co-founder of the certified forgotten podcast matt
2: welcome to the show Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to be talking about horror, you know, in in the summer. And I can confirm there is plenty of horror left still coming out for uh, October. So there is no shortage on the horizon. Excellent. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, So, Matt, you and I met many
0: years ago on the Internet, like via Twitter. Uh, I think we were both uh, working for a website called We Got This Covered way back in the day. And um, you've since gone on to just do a a ton of awesome horror writing, uh, all those publications I mentioned, but you also have the uh, Certified Forgotten podcast and your
2: co-founder. Could you tell us a bit more about
0: what that podcast is and why listeners should check it out?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Certified Forgotten is me and my co-host Matt Monagle. Uh, we're film critics. He's an Austin-based film critic, and it just was born out of having a conversation one day, and we realized we had both attended the same New York City horror film festival, just like a little indie festival, nothing huge, and it, we just had a conversation about like what happens to those movies that have these little indie festival runs that don't get the huge releases, that don't get the huge distribution, and you know, people just kind of stop talking about them. And so, we just had one of those things of. Kind of sucks, right? Like it just kind of sucks. These films fall to the wayside. So Certified Forgotten is a podcast that we developed that every single episode, a guest brings us a horror film, preferably from the 2000 era and onward, that has at this point 10 reviews or less critically on the Rotten Tomatoes page. So the idea is, we did start with five, I'll admit, and we made it 10 just to make it a little easier for our guests, because five was actually hitting really well, like we, we had plenty of movies and we were doing okay, but uh, we made it 10, just to make it a little easier for the guests, let everyone have some fun. And yeah, the idea is really just to champion those horror films that have slipped under the cracks of Rotten Tomatoes, whether that was in the early Rotten Tomatoes days, uh, horror was just, it wasn't what those critics that were accredited actually wanted to cover. So those movies either got ignored or panned, and then as you got on later, straight to video was a big kind of, you know, sacrilegious thing like, oh, if it's going to video, no, one it can't be good. So those got ignored. So now what you have is a lot of horror films from that era, especially indie that just never got discovered. So we're just going back and trying to rediscover them.
0: That's such a fun premise. I love it. And I, I love that it's in a lot of ways preserving or highlighting films that basically no, uh, no one saw. Them. Very few people saw. That's great. Out of curiosity, what were maybe
2: like a, two or three of your favorite from 2021 that you guys covered? Let's see from 2020. So are you saying episodes were recorded in 2021? Yes, correct. Yes. OK, so recently we have done some ones that like, you know, we're just pulling from we're pulling from all over. So, you know, the films can go as far back as the 80s and stuff like that. Uh, recent episodes that I've really enjoyed. One was called uh, Trace Thurman, who is part of the We was podcast and is uh, a disgusting writer, uh, brought on this movie called Deep Murder. And the very quick analysis is a hilarious cast of comedians and actors. Uh, they are playing in a softcore porn and you're kind of watching it like you're watching a softcore porno, like they're doing a satire of that. But then in the world of the porno, there's a murder. And I say that because it's a hard concept to kind of like, like, like they don't break from the filming method and be like, oh, no, we're on the set of a porno and there's a murder. All the characters just stay in character and there's a murder in the <laughs> porno. And like it sounded so dumb. It's something that like me and Monagle always kind of go back and forth and I'm the comedy guy. He's the straight lace guy and the more like period based. And we both love this movie, deep murder. We didn't expect to. So that was a, that was a really recent discovery for uh, all of us. And then we did an episode. uh, I'm going to go back a little farther. I think just one of my favorite episodes is a movie called patchwork. uh, And I brought on Amelia Emberwing, uh, who is an editor at IGN uh, as of now. And patchwork is Tyler McIntyre's first movie, he, uh, went on to do tragedy girls. And I think it's just so much fun. It is basically a Frankenstein riff where three women are murdered and put in the same body and they go to get revenge, but they're doing that in the same body. (laughs) So like the way they get around (laughs) it is they do the Frankenstein effects where you're seeing them stitched together as like, you know, one actress is playing her, but she's all uh, stitched up. Uh, but they do have a lot of moments where you go in the head of the monster, so you are seeing the three women separately, and they're just talking to each other and interacting, and it becomes this really weird creature feature girl gang flick that, like, does exactly what's intended. Like, it just goes against the patriarchy and has a lot of fun doing it. So there you go, Patchwork and Deep Murder, two, two uh, one recent,
1: one favorite. I literally just wrote both of those down, so... You, you uh, just, you just sold one person. I,
0: I feel like the first one would be an incredible companion piece with X, which is about a horror. You know, the filming of a, a porno that turns into a, a horror movie. I, I got to check both of those out. Do it. Well, hey, hey, Matt, thanks for sharing a little bit more about the the Certified Forgotten uh, podcast. Now, listeners, before we do get into today's review, I just wanted to quickly note that if you're listening to uh, the podcast today and you enjoy our conversation, please consider supporting the show by subscribing uh, to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app, most notably Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us those ratings, baby. Get us up. Get us discovered by more listeners just like you. Uh, It really goes a long way in, in helping us out. Currently, we're not really monetizing the show. So if you want to help us out, the best way you can do it is by taking 30 seconds to head on over to those apps and giving us a rating. With that said, though, let's break the ice a little bit. Matt, especially, I don't know how many of my listeners are familiar with you. So I I want to get to know a little bit more about your tastes and maybe uh, what you bring to the Black Phone. The, The film, of course, is set in 1978. So for our icebreaker question, I want to ask you that if you had no choice but to be trapped in a horror movie, What decade of horror movie would you prefer to be stuck
2: in and why? It's funny because I'm such a huge defender of 2000s based horror. I think that like 2000s, obviously talking about Certified Forgotten, (laughs) I mentioned the 2000s. I'm a huge remake guy as well. And I really love the idea of taking something classic and making it contemporary. So you'd think my answer would be like, oh, let, let me be in the new metal 2000s era of horror. But I can never get away from wanting to be around and like or sorry, be inside a movie like The Return of Living Dead. Um, I just think that entire eighties aesthetic, like especially mid eighties when midnighter movies were kind of at their peak and cheesy and They just they knew how to have fun, but they knew how to tell a story and they knew how to do all these things. And then like I'm a big music guy. So like the minute you start incorporating these really fun punk rock kind of soundtracks and going that rock route, uh, I, I, I use the Return of the Living Dead as my example of the film I would want to be stuck in. So despite a zombie apocalypse that ends with a nuclear explosion, probably the 80s is my answer.
0: Well, we're not too far off at this juncture anyway, so yeah. might as well have fun, go and fun, <laughs> right? Um, oh man, that's good. Uh, you know, zombie movies—I've I, I, kind of like climbed back and forth. I loved them, and then they got crazy popular, and I got less interested in them. But now that it's cooled a little bit, kind of the fantasy of the, the zombie apocalypse—there's something kind of weird and fun about it. Um, I always think about even the either of the Dawn of the Deads, um, either the original or the Zack Snyder remake, just being trapped in in a shopping mall with like uh, unlimited resources in terms of things that would be available in a shopping mall, food courts, weird fantasy. It'd be a good way. It'd be a fun way to go. Yeah. (laughs) Where it's terrible. (laughs) LeBron Chapman, how about you? What decade would you choose?
1: So, you know, historically African-Americans don't survive very long in this (laughs) genre. So I have to be modern, you know, I feel like anything, you know, eighties and, and prior is probably not going to fare well for me. So, I'll take my chances in the 90s, early 2000 era. I'd rather outwit or outrun like, you know, Ghostface than say face. I'll even hell. I'll even take the grabber before I'll take Fred, (laughs) Freddie and Jason, you know, because I just don't think I'd make it too far in that in that lane. So uh, so, yeah, I'll say I'll say that it's a pretty wide net. But 90s, early, early 2000s. That was kind of what I pinned you for. I'm surprised,
0: though. I was thinking you were going to say late 90s. Because uh it's when it gets meta
1: for it's true. Well yeah. I mean, and you and I also feel like I would I would I would be a Randy, so I feel like I mean or, <laughs> or a Kirby, you know, so you know, I'd be able to at least like try we'll be going back and forth on the phone, he'll get pissed off me and just kill me because I outwit him, you know, so I don't know, but at least I'll take better chances there because I don't want to fight anyone in my dreams. So <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> that's the. I still think one of these days we're going to get a great Nightmare on Elm Street remake because I just think to your point, the premise of uh, being completely vulnerable in your sleep—I don't for me personally—is pretty terrifying. The original remake, Matt, I don't know how you feel about it. I thought it had so much potential. Like in it, it got halfway, but I don't know. Actually, what did you think of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake?
2: I hate it. Um, I'm really not a fan of the remake of Elm Street, because I think the remake of Elm Street does what a remake shouldn't do it. It doesn't try to make its own legacy in a way. I know it takes a little bit of story here and there and it takes a deviation. But if you look at all the major scares and all the major moments from the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, they just try to replicate that in the new one remake. And they do it with, you know, the one the one moment I always use is Freddy looming over the bed. And in the original, Wes Craven, you know, is directing the scene and he's using just like latex as the wallpaper. And it's just great image of the face pressing against like the wall that pops out. Such a good scare. And then you look at the remake and what do they do? They just do a cheap CGI recreation, hack and, hack and slash, just right. To the, and like, that is just how I keep defining the film itself. So Jackie Earl Haley isn't doing anything wrong, I would say, as Freddie. It's just that Freddy is one of those characters that is so tied to Robert England and the actor playing him because the personality is so important. It just nothing compared, nothing lived up. So, yeah, uh, all that to say, uh, not a big fan of the remake, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I
0: I felt like the I liked the idea that they were sort of picking some of the elements that were not super deeply explored in the original films regarding the origin and and sort of going even further into the this guy was terrible. The children was like, well, there's some potential there. And then they didn't deliver on any of it. And then and that's the thing, Jackie O'Haley, I think. His performance was fine. It just wasn't very inspired. And yeah. you really, it, the thing is, it, like, I kind of think like, you know, you think like a, a Batman or James Bond, the only way you really do an iconic character like that is to just do something fundamentally different yeah. for it to really work.
1: I, I actually watched it like two or three weeks ago on Netflix for the first, not for the first time, but for the first time in a long time. And I felt the same. I felt like it's just so literal this time the the, the, the myth, you know, the mythicism is just kind of all but removed from it. And a lot of his voice work—it's it, a lot of ADR, so it feels very disembodied from the performance you're seeing on screen. So it's, it just feels very manufactured, and just yeah, it just kind of feels like a cheaper version of what we what we saw in the past. And some of those old Freddy movies are pretty cheap, but you have Robert England just going ham on it, so it just kind of you know sells even some of the. The stinker of sequels, you know, in it. So, but
0: even the stinker sequels have like a cool idea driving them. Sure. You know, I like number five, the the Dream Child. I love that one because it's got this weird gothic vibe to it and it's a mystery. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. It's not a great movie, but yeah. Yeah. You know, at least there was something going on. The second one, obviously, is the queer Freddy film. But again, like to your, I think uh, to what Matt was saying, it just is delivering on a lesser version of what we had before with modern effects, but poorly executed. So, I know about the ADR. That sucks.
2: Yeah. Well, and I would also use just really quickly, like Friday the 13th as the other side example where I champion the hell out of the Friday the 13th remake because Friday realized, wait, what if we just take the first three movies, condense them into one movie to get right to the good part where Jason gets his mask. And then we just gave everyone what they want right out front. Like that was such a great way to do the remake and use that concept to be like, we've learned from what we've done. And that's not to say that I even dislike any of the first three movies. I just, you know, they looked at the script and they said, all right, we're just going to go for a, what the people want. But we're also going to do it in a way that is smart, that is fierce, and that takes care of everything that like a remake should do. So, yeah, like I put them next to each other as being like nightmare is what you don't do when you do a remake. For, and you do it for the <laughs> wrong reasons when Friday is like, no, nah, we're going to re- reboot this. But, you know, we're just going to kind of fast forward some of the parts and give the people exactly what they're you know itching for.
1: Maybe one of these days we'll get another Friday the 13th movie well i hope they're taking all of our notes for halloween ends because there's a lot of conversation about halloween kills. <laughs> they got a
0: lot of work to earn my good graces back after that last one <laughs> um well we got a little off topic but that's okay because i legitimately uh, have hardly ever talked about the nightmare on elm street remake which i have feelings about even though it's not very good i'm gonna go with the 2010s and i know that seems like some recency biased but elevated horror if i'm gonna die in a horror movie i at least want it to be for some sort of thought-provoking reason. If I'm going to go down in the Babadook, it's because this woman clearly has some 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 things that she needs to to work, she's working on. And I'm willing to die for that if it helps her progress her character. In Midsummer, if any of those kids make it out alive, and I got to be the guy in the, the bear costume to get burned down in the barn. In fact, I was for Halloween one year. I was going to say, you were <laughs> for Halloween. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I got to do it. You got to have a reason. The, that sort of like elevated horror genre really for me was where... A lot of my favorite horror, like things about horror from the previous decades that you get one every once in a while or a movie would do it just kind of all right here or there in terms of like setting the tone and the atmosphere. And there being this underlying theme that's not super obvious, but literally the second you start digging into it, you're like, wow, yeah, there's actually some things to talk about and unpack here that are really interesting outside of just like the visceral thrills. Um, I've always been a, a fan of slow burn. So you could even throw The Conjuring in there, even though it's set in the 70s. It's got that real slow burn, sort of like religious reading to it. I would go with Elevated Horror of the twenty mostly because, Laron, I I can't take the 90s from you. No. You've got to
1: be in the Scream movies. I got to be in a Scream movie. That's what it is. <laughs> I was born to be in Scream. <laughs>
0: it's true. Laron, in fact, uh, at a con recently met the whole crew uh, and has photos.
1: It's pretty fun. It was, it was a blast. Can I post those in the show notes? You absolutely. Oh, good. my God. Yeah, I got good photos with Nev Campbell. I'll put it in there. Absolutely. And,
0: and you also apparently leaked news that Nev can't. What, what was the, the, the YouTuber? Well, her,
1: her favorite, uh, well, because I asked her her ranking of the film because a lot of people do that on social media accounts and stuff. And I was just like, what's your ranking? You're the final girl. Like what, wh- how do you rate the movies? And, and I think we were on par with it. It was the first one, the second one, the fifth one, the fourth one. And then the third one, I was very surprised that, um, you know, of her, her rationale there, but I, it could also be that what she was you know, her enjoyment on this, on the sets of those films. Cause that could probably have some bearing on it. And also like how substantial her role was in it, you know, like I know like she wasn't in three very much. So, um, she wasn't in five very much, but you know, so it's just kind of like, you know, like where she felt the most utilized on the onset. So also, but either way I was like happy to get that and post that. And then a bunch of bloggers just happened to see that post. And then without ever talking to me, you know, dedicated their, they were, whole, their they, whole They podcast. did their job, though. They cited you. They said. They say it was me. <laughs> film. Uh, what, what, what? I can't remember. That. They said. Okay. Yeah. Film. Film. Award winning filmmaker, Leron Chapman, I, recently I, interviewed. I was like, <laughs> I literally just asked her one question in a <laughs> Q&A. That's it. That's oh, so. Yeah, that's but mm-hmm. that's fun Yeah, we need our headlines though. You know, we we have our blogs,
2: we need our headlines. This is what we need. <laughs> I would have on? said yes, I would
1: have been a full interview. It was like, um, but no. It's
0: that next time that happens to Ron, because he's one of those people this sort of random stuff happens to where someone like he just gets tidbits that like somehow get picked up later. I'll send one to you if there's another screen-related one because <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there will be more with yeah. screen. Give me, me those exclusives. Kind of so we will get them on the right sides. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if we were trapped in the decades, those are the decades of horror films we'll be trapped in. So much fun. Uh, what decade would you be trapped in? Uh, let us know by sending an email to thecinematropolis at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And uh, for those of you who come up with some good answers, we you have a chance of having them read on the show. So please uh, do send them our way. All right. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our review of The Black Foam. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. What's new? The
1: flyer. The
0: papers call him the grabber.
1: I wish you wouldn't call him that.
0: You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe.
1: Oh, you goof. <laughs> well, isn't that just peachy keen? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. Are those black balloons in there? Would you like to see a
0: magic trick? So according to IMDB, the black phone is described as, after being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. So, Laurent Chapman, I'm just going to start off by saying, you know what's great about this synopsis? What is that? It is accurate to the film that I saw, <laughs> unlike yeah. Jurassic World Dominion, which yeah. lied to me, Glad which to lied to all of us. Yeah. So, yes, uh, this is uh, The Black Phone. It's, uh, as I noted earlier, it's directed by Scott Derrickson and written by C. Robert Cargill, who uh, both famously worked on Sinister back in 2012. In fact, probably the most recent movie I remember watching where it scared me so shitless. I literally couldn't sleep that night. And this film came about uh, because uh, I think Cargill had been working on it for a while. And after splitting with Marvel due to some creative differences, Scott Derrickson came back around and they immediately took on the black phone, uh, which, again, was a film that was already sort of in the pipeline. This just pushed it way up and guaranteed it got made, um, which is uh, really, really exciting. Uh, now, before we get into the, the film at all, I'd love to just hear really quickly a little bit more about you guys' take on Scott Derrickson uh, and or see Robert Cargill um, two sort of upcoming filmmakers. We're going to get more into details about their work. Specific to this movie in the spoiler section, but just really quickly, I mean, Matt, are you a fan of the what Derrickson and Cargill are doing?
2: What do you think? Yeah, so I'm definitely a fan of what Derrickson and Cargill are doing uh, as a pair, as a duo. So I, I, I mean, I go back further with Derrickson because Exorcism El- Emily Rose, I think, is a tremendous you know film and one of the better again indie horrors. Uh, I have not ventured to see Derrickson's Hellraiser uh, sequel. Like one of those that uh, hey maybe we'll cover on the uh, podcast someday. Sort of forgotten, but um yeah, so. Derrickson himself, I think, is such a talented uh, director, and we will talk about that way more. Obviously, we get into the Black Phone, but I think you know it, it goes without saying that Black Phone is a great example uh, for reasons I will give later. But like his vision right now, and you talk about horror filmmakers that have just a unique vision. In you know, like James Wan, right now is someone I would say that no one else is really doing what he is because we've seen people in his own universe try to do what he does, and they do it not well. Uh, Curse of Light La <laughs> and Conjuring Three, shout out. But there are just so few filmmakers, I think, that have like a real grip and stranglehold on horror cinema right now and watching Derrickson come back to horror and do what he did in the black phone and just assert that he's like, nah, I'm like one of the better horror filmmakers we have right now. And like, I'm going to show you why. So Derrickson Cargill together. Amazing. Uh, Derrickson directing. I think. I look at him doing horror and I just I hope he keeps in horror because I will admit Doctor Strange is one of like my least favorite of the origin stories. Um, I don't think it translates as well there, and I just don't think it has the same pop that his horror work does. So even Deliver Us From Evil, it's not a great movie, but it still has style and substance and it's what you want in a horror film. So that is my Derrickson take.
0: Excellent. Derrickson takes. Matt's pro. LeBron Chapman.
1: Oh, I'm also pro. I echo everything he said. I think um, I wish we had uh, less gaps between you know, his work as a, as a horror director, because there's a lot of people kind of uh, forcing their way in here that may, may or may not be a good influence on the genre. So it'd be nice to see more consistent work with him. Cause I really think it can kind of tonally set like where this is what makes a good horror film. And I'm not looking for copycats, just looking for people to look at kind of how he approaches it versus like, you know, manipulating it and manufacture it in any type of way. I like what Jordan Peele's doing as well, you know, so mm-hmm. this social conscious horror you know, socially conscious horror films, you know, so um, and it's weird that that's coming out of like, again, comedians, you know, I think of that, like, even The Quiet Place, uh, what's his name? Uh Yeah. Yeah, So like comedians are making good horror movies. It's weird to me. It's like, but, but they're doing better than some people have done over, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, like those movies are more memorable than, than several others that have come in, you know, in the same time frames.
2: to be a comedian, you have to have a dark side. And this is actually one of my friends is a comedian. And I've asked him, I'm like, you know, where does that come from? I'm like, you know, just what you said, Jordan Peele, great example. We all know him from Key and Peele for so long, and there's the funny guy and stuff like that. And then he comes out and makes something truly terrifying with Get Out. And then he continues again, showing as being one of the leading voices in horror right now with us. And I went to my comedian friend who does stand up all the time. He does a lot of stuff. I'm like, so what's the click there? He's like, do you know how messed up you have to be to be a comedian, like to find humor in this shit? And like, what, they do and the jokes they tell like he's like no yeah comedians are some of the darkest mofos out here and i was like yeah no that tracks okay so that like that makes sense and yeah. like,
0: <laughs> well and 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 i think like you know i'm not a by any means a, an expert in comedy um i'm not gonna make that claim but i, w- I would think too in order to to understand what it makes it takes to make someone laugh you have to understand people and what makes them tick which i think is also a really important part of what makes a good horror movie What is someone like what kind of zone is someone gonna be when they're seeing these things? How can and then how can I like pull one out from underneath them or make them feel uncomfortable? You have to have like a really good understanding of human nature to laugh, but also to be scared. Yeah. So I think that's a good call, Matt. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, my bias is we're pretty aligned. I'm a big fan. Um, I think Derrickson's are one of the, the the more unique voices we have in horror. There's there's only a handful. I think James Wan's a great example, Jordan Peel's a great example. I think right up there is Scott Derrickson. The thing I I also want to note about C. Robert Cargill. I listened to Spill.com way back in the day. I don't know, Matt, if you ever listened to those guys. I think they're doing some of them. They broke into like multiple podcast websites with Corey Coleman and those crews. But way back, I mean, I'm talking like early podcast days, early YouTube, really early YouTube days. These were guys who would just get around the microphone and talk movies and all from like the, the Austin film community. Cargill was among them. He was like a critic. He, I think he was more of a rec- frequently recurring guest than he was a regular. But he was on there all the time. And I remember thinking, God, this guy has got some good takes. He knows his stuff. And then he went, he said, hey, I'm leaving to do some personal projects. And I was like, well, that's a bummer. I'm going to miss hearing him on the show. Well, long story short, that show, the, they, they pulled the plug on it after a couple of years later. And then Cargill goes on to, you know, do Doctor Strange, which, you know, love it or hate it, was a ticket for for him to be able to do more cool stuff. Sinister, again, incredible film incredible pairing between Derrickson and Cargill. So I'm just super excited to see awesome people being successful uh, and also not settling for a a very specific niche, because I don't think um, as we sort of transition to our review here, I don't think that, They were content just making a second Sinister movie or another Sinister type movie. They actually went for something different while utilizing some of the same tools. Now, on that said, though, let's get to our actual thoughts on the black phone and spoiler-free mode. What did you think of the black phone? Just really quick overall impressions, and we'll we'll drill down just a little bit here. And and Matt, I'll start with you.
2: Sure. Uh, Staying spoiler-free and staying super vague, I will just say that I think the black phone is just incredibly effective. Um, It does a good job laying the groundwork of being a period based kind of like Richard Linklater film like early on you meet a kid who's just a kid and very like in little league and doing all the things that are very just nice and dramatic and you're teeing up this terrible horror film but i think it's a great contrast uh, because what we get later is a terrible horror film in the sense that not quality terrible like invasive and destructive and the way that he toes the line of, I I like what you said about sinister before because I too compare them You know, Sinister and the Black Phone are absolutely going for different kinds of horror, but they employ the same methods. And you see the direction of, you know, Derrickson being so key here because he's still able to get the same paranormal kind of jumps and scares throughout the film, even though this is now a kidnapping scenario. And he's just using a lot of the same horror techniques, but done in a different way because he's just good at telling a horror story. And that is what is the simplest way to do it. Like we'll drill down later about all the reasons why it's good, but... The Black Phone is just a very good horror story. And especially in a time when like we're looking for kind of bigger budget examples on the big screen that have an identity and have a director who has a great horror voice. That's the Black Phone. That's
1: just what it is.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well said. Uh, Laurent Chapman, what's your take?
1: Um, yes, it's a very effective thriller. But I think what uh, you know makes it a little bit more impactful for me is that the characters, um, we care about them. We care about the stakes that they're in. Um, and that's not normally um, a prerequisite with horror with the horror genre. So I, I think that by again laying that foundational ground, you know, early on, uh, get us invested into the emotional stakes of the characters uh, just made us so much more involved in all of the you know the disturbing aspects of the story. So. Yeah, I thought it was very effective
0: for me. And I don't I definitely don't see as many horror movies as Matt. So I'll preface it this way. But it, at least for me so far, this is the best horror film I've seen this year. And I don't want to re- repeat too much of what Lauren and Matt have said, because I think they've both said it really well. The one thing I want to add, maybe two things. I love that it's, as Matt said, so grounded in a sort of more traditional slice of life. Uh, Link is a great example or a great comparison story. This film is a drama that. I still I think in its core it's actually a drama that just happens to be extremely scary and utilizes a lot of horror techniques. It's all grounded in very real character drama, broken homes, uh, you know, siblings who don't get along. They still kind of love each other. Bullies in town, you know, over over dumb stuff like all these things feel very relatable. And I like how he sort of reels you in a little bit i won't spoil too much but like every time you start to get used to a certain status quo he introduces a new mechanism where you're like oh okay this plot's thickening a little more tell me more so i think outside of you know sort of that that link letter comparison or even the sinister comparison i'd actually compared it to a stephen king novel um though uh, maybe a little more grounded in a lot of ways at least from a character perspective Uh, but it's got that like this is a real human story that's really heightened through these circumstances, and, you, and like it's, it's like a, an onion that you peel back. While at the center of it, the core fear is the grabber, uh, Ethan Hawke, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's not like some crazy supernatural ghost. It's not some supervillain. It's not like this crazy larger-than-life. It's just a guy going around kidnapping kids. Right. So, I, I again, I think all of those things just make it uh, feel unique, have its own identity, feel fresh on the big screen. And you take all those together and you just have some great execution and, and a tightly written script. And I think we've got a really dynamite film uh, comparing the black phone to Sinister. Uh, more thoughts here. I'd love to, to just d- dive into that a little bit more, because from my perspective, I feel like you were saying we were saying earlier, similar films. Similar tool sets applied differently. LaRon, did you have any sort of thoughts or notes on how this might differ? And I, I only asked this question because I do think they're fundamentally different enough that I wouldn't necessarily always recommend Sinister to someone who likes the Black Phone and vice versa.
1: Fair. I think tonally they're about just as dark and unsettling. I think the what works for both of them, though, I think is there's this, you know, the eerie, obviously the very eerie cinematography, the production design is very textured, Um, And the use of really grainy archival footage, you know, that really kind of sets the tone for that, that 70s era. Um, And again, I just think that those, those things grounded, even when the more supernatural elements kind of take, take the reins. That texture around it, the the, the characters, the setting in this place, we feel very much like we're in that space. So when those things are added, it's not so, you know what I mean? It's not so, it's not, it doesn't feel so divorced from it. I mean, you know, we can we can accept it. We can accept whatever the story is because we're so invested in what's happening on screen. So, mm-hmm.
0: Matt, uh, any thoughts about how the, the Black Phone compares to, to Sinister, how they are similar or different?
2: Yeah, so I'll just go the comparison route, because uh, for me, it's children fight for survival, uh, others become ghosts, and grainy home videos present information in a stick to your kind of brain manner. So for me, it is just so similarly tied thematically. And then the differences of the employment, um, obviously, Sinister, we're talking about a film that really goes for those gnarly demonic scares, you know, Bagul is this menacing beast, and the supernatural makes it so much worse because you're going between like these like ghost dimensions almost and the kids coming in and out. But then, you know, you go into the black phone and it is very much a a human thriller, we'll call it, you know, the, the grabber is just another abused person who has taken, you know, all the trauma from their life and turned it into the worst manifestation possible. But it's still just a human at the core of it. And we have to find a way to get those same scares somehow. And like Derrickson does like Derrickson takes all the horrifying elements of sinister. Um, you know, there's a scare here and there where like the, it's, it's a really hard pull on a, on a character's face. And then like a ghost head will come out of nowhere into screen. Like it's the same trick but you're not expecting it here. And I think Derrickson also knows that too. It's like, you know, you're not expecting the Bagul kind of scares in a movie like The Black Phone. And that's when he's like, but what if? <laughs> like, but what if we did that? And so I think that's where, again, comparison, differentiation, and they meet in the middle because he's essentially using the same tools, but using them in a way that is fresh, unique, and again, almost unexpected because he knows you're not looking for it.
0: One thing I, I like here is the the fundamental... Motivations of the main characters uh, in both movies and sort of how it creates a different type of tension. So and the, uh, Sinister, your main character, you think he's a good guy, but then is consistently making selfish decisions and he's digging d- deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. And it's like, how is he going to get out of it? All right, we weren't going to spoil where the film ends up even though it came out uh, gosh <laughs> 10 years ago, but you know, he's digging his way in and you're like, "Oh no, don't do this, don't do this." The tension is don't do it and you just he just keeps going further and further and you're like, "I hope he can figure it out." This one though, our main character is completely innocent. Just happens to get kidnapped, so the whole thrust of the film is, "How do I get out of here?" And I find that sort of interesting because the 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 tension's a little different, the urgency's a little different. I have more dread in Sinister because you just know at its core it's not going in a good place versus this movie, you really, you, you feel like it could be hope, uh, heading to a hopeful place, but you genuinely don't know. Again, I, I can't spoil it too much, but the, the way you, the way they use the ghostly characters is, is a, quite a bit different than they use them in Sinister. Again, just the, the, the motivations of the ghosts, for even for example. So again, we'll get into that in spoilers, but I just think the, the, the thrust and the type of story that we're, that we're watching, what really generates the drama and the tension is, is different enough. The other thing I would say is I have friends, in my life maybe some listeners i don't know who really get wigged out by demonic storytelling so i uh, you know unfortunately as much as it breaks my heart because i love recommending sinister to literally anybody i can i can talk to yeah if, if they're like oh, i can't do demons i'm like well you sh- you should rethink that number one <laughs> but if you absolutely can't demons I get cool. it.
1: do demons <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but if you can't do it fine just skip sinister this one though again it is Pretty grounded in reality with some super uh, natural elements. I would feel very comfortable recommending this to almost anybody. I mean, obviously, it's an outradar film and there's some there's some if they like thrillers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels very accessible and in that way.
2: Yeah, it's funny on that because uh, I have people who are the opposite and it's they can do demons. They can do ghosts because, oh, those those aren't real, quote unquote. I mean, they might be like we still don't know. I'm maybe I'm a skeptic, but it's the movies like the black phone, which are actually hard to recommend to some people I know because that could happen. And for them, they're like, I don't want to see the hard movie that might be able to happen. I want to see the ones that I can kind
1: of look at and go, that ain't real. They're like, my neighbor has a black van. I don't want to think about <laughs> yeah. you know, it. Like, like, for real. though. Anytime I see a black van drive by, I am gonna walking be, away. I'm going to be thinking. About it. Yeah, absolutely. or a black balloon. Either uh,
0: no. Different strokes for different folks. Ethan Hawke. Okay. We have to talk about Ethan Hawke who doesn't get a name. He is credited as the grabber in the credits and I'm sure you guys both read about this, but he famously accepted the role of the grabber by leaving director Scott Derrickson a very threatening voicemail, which I just thought was incredible.
2: <laughs> like, yeah.
0: how, what, how would you feel to have someone just call you up and leave you like a, a voicemail? Like, Oh, my God, I'm about to get murdered. That
2: that happened. I mean, for PR for the house that Jack built, uh, IFC Midnight thought it would be funny to call a bunch of us journalists and have the person read a little bit of passage in the voice of the killer so i still remember being out in new york city and it's like 2 a.m and my phone rings and i get a voicemail which is exactly what you're explaining like literally i get a voicemail that is pr for the house of jackville but no one has said anything about it and it is just this creepy ass voice as I'm like walking home from the bar telling me like this is the house that Jack built this is the da 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 and I'm just like what the fuck like
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible marketing though right because I'm sure you you at least stopped and thought this is fucking crazy um should I report on this do I tell someone did
2: someone just start my life I don't know what's going on (laughs) it got attention I tweeted about it that went into articles it uh, definitely got attention
0: (laughs) Laurent, have you ever considered, you know, giving a rollout by calling them via threatening voice message? Have you ever considered this before?
1: I can neither confirm nor deny whether I've already done that. And they didn't didn't get me a role in a movie, but (laughs) we (laughs) lost a job. But (laughs) but um, no, I don't think we appreciate uh, Ethan Hawke. Enough, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been giving career best performances and then topping that performance and then topping that performance, you know, for a while, you know, me and you and I had aired our grievances about first reformed first and why he wasn't a why he wasn't even nominated. I was sure he's going to win and he wasn't even nominated. Um, but yeah, like you said, all of his work in, with link letters is, is very terrific. He's great here. Even like, you know, doing, he does so much with so little here because we really don't see his face maybe one and a half times this entire movie. And it's, it's his voice. It's his presence. It's his physical mannerisms. You know, it's all just, ah, just really unnerving. Yeah, no, I, I think he's,
0: he's, he's absolutely terrific in this role. I was trying to think of like another comparison. I mean, I know he was just in Moon Knight, the I was not very happy. I mean, he was great, but the 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 show was very disappointing. So um, it was, it was good to see him working with some better material. That's probably, you know, the closest direct villain in this role. I can recall seeing him in. He did play a really interesting role 12-ish years ago in Daybreakers, which was oh, yeah. a vampire film. Uh, not a bad guy, but also not 100% a good guy either. You know, I think he was the protagonist, I guess. But um, we don't really get to see him do stuff like this super often. And I think he just goes for it. Yeah, he is terrifying. And the reason he's terrifying is because you feel like you could know this guy. You like this guy could live like three blocks away from me and I would have no idea. And he could be your brother. Uh, don't, don't say that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, this movie was already an excellent film, but Ethan Hawke just took it up for me, took it up another level. Uh, Matt, what did you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, just to kind of go off what Laron said as well. I agree with both of everything you said. I, there's not much to add to say that, like, this is his career-defining villain role in a way because he doesn't really do them there was a whole point of him taking the black phone because he's like i don't really do these characters very often or at all so you know what i maybe that's just years of pent-up aggression just coming out in his performance now um but there's just one scene uh, going off what Laurent said specifically about how he doesn't have to do much in this film to terrify us and he's working with basically minimalist uh, tools and he's basically walking down a staircase at one point and he's in shadows and you can't see what mask he's wearing. And I think, you know, it's worth noting that Tom Savini did the masks and it's basically a frown and it's basically a smile. And depending on which mask he's wearing, that is what we can expect in the scene. Is it going to be him being nice or be him being not nice? So the one scene that just nails it for me is he's walking down the stairs, he's in the shadows, he's approaching the kidnapped boy, Finney, and we don't know yet if he's happy or sad. Is he going to be mean? Is he going to be not mean? And he starts talking in in a high-pitched, happier tone. So you just immediately are like, oh, cool. We're we're preparing ourselves for another interaction where he's going to tell this kid Finney what he can do to survive and everything's going to be okay. And then he walks into the light. And he walks into the light and he's wearing the frown on. And you Mm -hmm. like just what he does in that moment of convincing us that everything is going to be okay, we put our safeguard – our safeguard goes down, like – it's a great performance moment because he makes us feel OK. And then he walks in and we just see his eyes and the mask and, and a menace that comes with it. And everything changes just on time. So for, like that performance power right there for me was just when I was like, yeah, no, top tier, like top tier villain shit. <laughs> oh, I
0: know. I I love I love I love how you put that, though, because he's able to make you feel comfortable just for a second and. It's like that whole kidnapper, kidnap. I, there's a, there's actually a phrase for it. Apologies, I don't know what it is, but when, whenever you're kidnapped and you start to bond with your kidnapper or whatever. Isn't that Stockholm Syndrome? Is, it, is that what it is? Is it, is it straight up Stockholm Syndrome? Okay, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. So you're, you are, <laughs> you're, you're kidnapped and obviously is a terrible thing and you're literally being held prisoner, but sometimes he's nice, right?
1: It um, confuses that that relationship right? Lot. As the audience
0: even, you know, because you're like, well, maybe we're going to unpack something about his, past that's going to make us feel less bad about him or something, you know, but Matt, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the mask too. Uh, again, Tom Savini design, uh great choice. And I love how they cleverly, they use different. There's, there's a few, it's, it's a, you basically can take it apart. Uh, you, everyone uh, listeners, you've, you've probably seen the poster, but it's, it's a actually very module. So he can, take the eyes off and you can see only his eyes uh, eyes versus uh, the smile with a frown. Or sometimes you can, you, he's got the eyes on, you can see his mouth. It's just incredible costume design, incredible performance. Not much more to be said other than Ethan Hawke really should have won for First reform <laughs> <Yes. laughs> but, but also that takes us to really the, the, the stars of the film, because at the end of the day, Ethan Hawke actually has fairly limited screen time in comparison to the the children. So, of course, you have Finney in the movie who is played by, I believe it's Mason Thames. He has uh, his sister Gwen, who's played by Madeline McGraw, are really kind of the two stars. Also, quick shout out to Jeremy Davies, also not in this movie very much. I just really love him. Big Lost fan from way back in the day. Just a really great underrated performer we don't see a lot of. But the two uh, lead kids, so again, the actors uh, Mason Thames for Finney and Madeline McGraw for Gwen, I thought were tremendous child actors is such a hit or miss and whenever they're your main characters in your pov it's a big risk those kids have to nail it and i thought they really sold it super well and not only the main two but there was also all the previously kidnapped kids they had to cast that you know had less screen time but were highly effective in the moment matt what did you think of the the, the cast of child actors in the film
2: Uh, Very good. And, you know, a lot of horror films, indie horror films specifically try to do, you know, what you just explained the sense of we're gonna have a child performance that's going to be, you know, integral to the plot. And the unfortunate nature is that a lot of those times those performances aren't as great. It's untrained actor, actors that are very young. And that it just tanks a movie. Like when you have one of those performances, it just immediately tanks it. Um, I think this year has been tremendous for these kinds of roles because between this and a film called The Innocence that came out not too long ago about children, superheroes, essentially, um, you know, we've just had these really great examples that show you can find these young kids who are tremendous actors. And specifically here in Black Phone, staying here, uh, you have Mason and Madeline having to come together as both brother and sister because maybe they're not seeing to eye at all times. time so like they're doing the bl- brother sister dynamic but then also the trapped and rescue dynamic because they're again not in the same place like you know Gwen and Finny are in completely different places and Gwen is trying to figure out how to get her brother out and the dire necessity of that task and then Gwen also can have premonitions and like the paranormal thing kind of comes into a little bit so like there is so much complexity going into these like younger roles adolescent roles and the presence that they have is just on a level that it defies age like it's one of those things that you no longer see age it's just tremendous performances that carry the film and we get lost in them and that's why they are just a cut above i would say (laughs) Oh, absolutely!
0: I love that. You, yeah, you stop seeing them as child actors; you just believe them as the character in the in the moment. Yeah, it's tremendous. Uh, Laurent, what, what what you what do you think of the the child cast?
1: No, I agree. And I, the complexity of their relationship is really kind of set up pretty early on, before anything horrific really happens on screen. It was really nice to get their relationship. Just like their home life, their, you know, their dynamic with each other, their dynamic at school, you know, so it was really nice to get all of that character work early on before we ever get into the actual abduction and, and what have you. But yeah, their performances were phenomenal, particularly for me, Madeline McGraw really, really sells it for me. Um, And I just think they elevate it the story beyond mere jump scares, you know, and suspense. So again, we're rooting for their survival.
0: I always go back to classic example, not a horror film, but it's like Star Wars episode one, the Phantom Menace, you know, like um, if you, if you do it wrong, it, it really hurts the movie. You do it right. It takes the whole movie up a, a, an entire level. And I think this is definitely an example of the latter. Okay. So we are getting near the end of the spoiler free section here, just really quickly. Um, so Matt on our show, there are so many different rating uh, scales out there. Um, I I have two different ones I use. I use one for my letterbox account because I have no choice. Uh, the one we use on this show is uh, more like a a paper in college an A, B, C, D, F rating. There is room for pluses or minuses before we, we kind of wrap it up and get into the spoiler section. Should people go see this movie and, and what letter grade would you give it? I'll start with you, Matt.
2: Yes, uh, people should absolutely go see this movie as uh, what what I will still call original horror. Uh, I know it's coming from a Joe Hill adaptation. Uh, I understand it's an uh, adaptation means it's, it exists somewhere else, but I still consider it like an original horror IP in a time where it's just so uncommon with the controversy and things of that nature. Everything needs an IP these days. So very happy to say, go see the black phone. And if I were well, I, I'm so happy to say, go see the black phone. Somebody literally tweeted into my feed like a few days ago i don't know they were getting shitty online they were like i don't get any everyone who like loves the black phone it's one of the worst movies i've ever seen and also madeline mcgraw is one of the worst performances i've seen in a long time and i muted that guy so like literally if you you. into my feed it's an instant (laughs) that's how much that's how much i love this movie and how much i'll defend it so that is how much and if i'm giving it a letter grade i think it comes in like I really think it was a B plus when I walked out of the theater. And the more I've thought about it, that has really elevated. Let's say it got extra credit and it's an A minus now.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well said. Uh, I I think you and I are on the same page. But first, Laurent Chapman, what letter grade would you give the film?
1: Apparently we all cheated on this test. I gave it an A Uh, (laughs) minus. so We got all the same answers here. But yeah, I think it's one of the better horror films I've seen in in a couple of years. So, um, yeah, I gave it a solid A minus
0: Yeah, I I mean, I'm on the same page. A minus as well. Uh, Like minds, I guess. Maybe if this had come out 10 years ago when I wasn't so tired of IP franchise driven films and the pandemic has only made it worse where it just feels like it's so rare that we get anything original, quote unquote, again, but even novel adaptations anymore aren't super common compared to comic books or video games or you name it like it, it's it's becoming less and less common. So, yes, that definitely gives it an extra. It, it feels more fresh today than it probably would have been even 10 years ago. So with that, I also give it an A minus. And uh, I like to throw this out there, too, for, for those of us uh, listen, our listeners who maybe have already seen the movie. What alternate movie, television, novel, music, video game or whatever other thing recommendation would you give to listeners who enjoy the black phone? Laron, I'll start with you.
1: I came up with three because I never can narrow it down. But these all kind of deal dealing with the same themes, you know, uh, not exactly a horror film, but um, very much related to the same kind of trauma. that The kids are going through room that came out um with uh what was, what's her name brie larson brie larson right?
0: Not to be confused with the room just a, not not no. tommy <laughs> why <students laughs> yeah, are, yeah was, no the room
1: also a horror film for different reasons but <laughs> no um room uh yeah the the, the drama <laughs> um um prisoners uh came to mind um and then as well uh split to a lesser degree but you know all dealing with the vulnerability of our youth or children you know in these kind of situations so. Two two or
0: three of the, uh, and two of the three of those also deal with kidnappings kidnappings yes so, absolutely yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah consistent theme there uh all great recommends i had prisoners
0: on, on mine as well so i'm just going to scratch that out 2013 underseen dennyville new film check it out uh matt donato uh w- what else would you recommend
2: yeah so a film came out i forget if it was one year or two years ago a little indie horror flick on shutter called the boy behind the door and uh, it, it's really hand in hand just a it takes Kind of the same approach of a kid kidnapped child. It just takes all the supernatural out of it. It is just a kidnapping scenario. But two child performers, once again, who do a very good job. And one kid has to rescue his friend. And that's the whole movie. And they're fighting adults. So Boy Behind the Door, uh, Shudder. And then I'm also going to recommend a film called Deadly Games, which is a possible kidnapping scenario. Uh, have either of you seen 1989's Deadly Games? I have oh. not. But it
0: sounds like. Just the title alone has me interested.
2: So I, I'm going to have to give you the quick spiel. And it is basically a riff on Home Alone where a crazed Santa Claus breaks into a like m- millionaire's house. And the kid, who is a huge action movie fan of like Stallone and like Rambo films, he basically has to defend his house from this crazy person dressed as Santa. And you have a grabber like element where unfortunately the Santa has been uh, shaped by trauma in some way and has become who they are in almost sympathetic means, but doesn't know what they're doing. And this kid just goes into survival mode and the way he has to fight back and the way the things that happen, like it is so over the top cheesy kind of shutter horror. But it was a film that hit in 1989 and because of Home Alone got buried in the States. So it literally wasn't really released. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it didn't get really released until about one or two years ago, I think. So it's basically a brand new film stateside. Look for Deadly Games. It is so much fun. It is crazy. Do it. And you said it's on Shudder? I believe it's on Shudder, but now I think Believe Elsewhere. So I think you can get yeah. it like on as okay. a VOD rental, other places. I will find out listeners and link yeah. that in the show notes. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's fun. Confirmed.
0: LeBron, you already said prisoners. I'm going to throw out one. This is actually not a film, and uh, and actually, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to preface this with and Matt, we're going to. I actually want to ask you about this maybe after we if we have time after we record. But um, the the quarry was a video game that recently came out, which is a horror game. Have you, LeBron, I just played it. You just played. Okay, it. Okay, okay, it? okay, so okay, good, okay, good. So we can good. talk about it. Oh, that, we'll have to. Yeah, we're all going to have to talk about this after we're <laughs> done recording. Um, well, firstly, go play the quarry because it's basically like a choose your own adventure horror movie essentially it's on uh i think it's actually on most modern platforms so yeah. Xbox 1 PlayStation 4 PlayStation 5 PC and again it's a choose your own adventure horror movie so you start as a i think it what's it, six counselors mm-hmm. six counselors uh and uh you guys decide to break the rules. Your counselor's like, hey, we got to go. And this one guy named Jacob, who's clearly a douchebag, is like, but I got to stay here one more night to win the girl and decides to sabotage. Like, I know this is sort of a spoiler you find out in the first like act of the game, uh, but basically he's like, oh, we're going to sabotage the car. So the, all of us have to stay here an extra night. And uh, the camp counselor, after saying, no, you absolutely have to leave tonight in very mysterious ways, then says, OK, just just stay inside. You'll be OK if you just stay inside and then drives off. And naturally, the teenagers don't si- stay inside. Bad things ensues. But the fun part is you get to actually interact with and make choices that sort of play out the horror movie. So different characters can live or die. You can actually... Unlock parts of the story uh, if you play it right that you would not unlock if you don't play it well, which is actually super important because I did kind of read around on some of the alternate endings I didn't get, and I was like, wow, I can't imagine playing the game the yeah. game with and it ended this way without all this other backstory that you get if you play it a certain way. So yeah. um, again, that's the quarry. I, like I said, I think it's all on all current next NextGen platforms uh, for for gamers out there. Uh, but actually, that wasn't even the one I was going to recommend. I'm just throwing that in there as an, uh, an additional I want to recommend is actually Heavy Rain, and this one actually came out way back on the PlayStation three it's been released on the playstation 4 and playstation 5 same type of game except for it's more like a a traditional detective story so this kid's being kidnapped and he's being held hostage by this killer who i i hope i'm not spoiling it i think this is in the premise of the game but essentially he kills his victims by putting them in a sewer drain and like right on the day before a big storm ensuring that they will drown and you basically play, I think there's like three, maybe four different characters you play as throughout the game, including um, uh, the dad, his son's the one who's kidnapped. You play a private eye detective and then you play like an FBI detective and every, kind of approaching the story from different angles. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot of overlap. If you like the so, sort of like kidnapped detective mystery story, you actually get to interact in that sort of, uh, sort of narrative. And similarly to the quarry, it's one of those, you choose your own adventure, real time events. You have to like you know, tap X really fast or whatever. It is a PlayStation, I believe, it might be on PC now, but it originally was a PlayStation exclusive PS3, but you can definitely play it on the PS4 and PS5 today. So those are my recommends. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't want to be spoiled on the black phone, go ahead and tune out now. Fuck the prime
1: time, bitch!
0: No more warnings because we're going to talk about all these dream sequences. I want to start off first. There's actually like, I think three main areas I want to hit on. And the first one's being sort of this blurry line between dreams, visions, and reality. Because I I would argue, I'm not saying I personally take (laughs) this position, but I was really thinking about it. I believe there is a potential way to read this ending in which there's not really that much supernatural going on. The premonitions are pretty much inarguable. You can't really get around those. But like is there a way in which this kid just happens? Like, is he going crazy? There's kind of this question here. Um, And I think uh, that Derrickson does a really great job at sort of leaving enough ambiguity for you to kind of read it multiple ways. Now I I will say I come down (laughs) fully thinking supernatural for sure, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was kind of enjoyable kind of playing the movie back to my head. I was like, well, maybe you could sort of think of this as this kid's going crazy and he's just kind of coping with it. And he's sort of using his own like ob- observations and kind of playing it out of his head. Um, so all that said, I think the black phone takes a really specific approach in how and when it shows the victims who Finney uh, talks with on the phone. You know, Just to kind of start off sort of like this exploration of what's real, what's dreams, what's reality. Uh, what was your take on how and when these victim children were used and presented? And uh, Laurent, I'll start with you.
1: Um, no, I agree with you about how the, the supernatural elements function for Finney's character versus Gwen. Um, I think for Gwen, obviously it's very direct, like she's having visions, premonitions, dreams. Um, but I, I can see how it could be interpreted for Finney. Like it could be a coping mechanism. It could not, it may not be a direct, you know, a direct supernatural thing. Um, because I think that's, that's the subversion I think of the trope here where we're thinking that, you know, oh, this is a supernatural film and not just a kidnapper film, you know, like, um, because those, those visions while while disturbing, actually have purpose and intention you know so you see these uh you know these deceased kids but there's a reason they're they're coming very much in the way that, that the that people were used in the sixth sense or they have some kind of message to give to the person so while they might scare him or scare us when they when they apparate or what have you they actually have um, a genuine purpose that's beneficial to his cause in the end so
0: Right. I think the Sixth Sense Comparison is really good. Um, and Matt, I'll turn it to you. I mean, what, what do you. What was your take on how they use the the victim children?
2: Yeah, I think the blurred lines, like you mentioned before, are really smart uh, because, you know, Derrickson doesn't necessarily maybe want us to understand if the victim children are a trauma response that are in Finney's head or something supernatural, because at that point, all that matters is Finney and what Finney's going through and how Finney is uh, processing that. And uh, it's one of those films where leaving that ambiguous actually works for me. Um, you know, ambiguity is sometimes something that I'll go into on a film that possibly not to call it a 24 but they have a lot of tendencies to take you through like 90 minutes of a movie and then leave you with something tremendously ambiguous at the end of it. And that's like supposed to be the payoff. So I, it's not always my favorite mechanism, but here it works because again, like the stress is put on what's happening in the moment and how Finney is, you know, using the voices and using the phone. And, you know, it's less about what's and why's and more about just how we're in the experience and what's happening. So for me, I do think it's supernatural. I do think that the kids are actually some kind of, you know, parallel universe communication. Uh, And again, Gwen's stuff is that's hard to argue away. It's just stuff that she is experiencing and she is not alone by herself. So her experience is totally different than Vinny's fun, fun way to do it. Fun way to make it more than just a lockbox scenario inside uh, a basement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's kind of cool because um, again, I come down on the supernatural, so to make that clear, (laughs) but I love the idea that, you know, he, he, I think most of the information that he, he gets from them he could could either be from his own observations in terms of like the stuff he knows about them, because this has been in the news and he's a kid. He's scared. He's probably reading all these stories about these kids who are showing up on these posters all over town um, and sort of how that could you know manifest within his imagination. That said, those ghosts are creepy. Uh, there's some crazy stuff. And I don't you know, pretty much all of them, the one that I, I definitely can't explain is absolutely the. They break through the wall to get in the fridge to get the steaks. That I, that one's that one's kind of a reach. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: and um, they and they have very specific instructions. So there's that level of you know yeah for sure yeah.
0: But I was like, oh, the cable. I was like, he probably could have found that. He could have dug that hole. You know things like that. You guys do come down thinking this is uh, pretty conclusively a supernatural filler. Um, I think this actually is going to take me right into sort of our second topic here, which is uh, how to use a psychic in a horror movie. This is a super common horror movie trope. Uh, you know, we have psychics or telepaths are often used as a solution or a plot device to drive the story forward. I mean, uh, obviously one of the, the, the original hits uh, using this mechanism was Carrie, but it also uh, plays a role in the shining. Obviously there's Friday the 13th part seven, I believe that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what Sixth Sense, as you mentioned, thinking about the other supernatural element outside of ghostly children. Uh, how well do you guys think the Black Phone handled Gwen and, and sort of her, you know, use of uh, visions and, and psychic powers uh, map?
2: I think it works very well because not only do I love Gwen as a character uh, before she is even a psychic when she is just throwing rocks and bullies and standing up for her timid brother, but. To your point, you know, the psychic is kind of a cop out in a way in a lot of movies. It's just we need a way to get to the answer here. uh, And we're just going to bring in the person who knows everything and is going to be the wisdom telling soothsayer, whatever you want to call it, who just steps in and he or she is going to solve the day. Cause that's what they do. Like that's their function. And is that a little bit what happens in the black phone? Yes. But there's also an arc to Gwen that is farther than that. Like this is Gwen discovering that she has these powers as well. So we are going through her journey as much as we're going through Finney's. Uh, Finney's is a little more desperate, I would say. And Gwen's is a little more fantastical, but doing so actually gives us something to latch onto. And there is a struggle there. It's not just, you know, Lin Shay walking in and being the insidious, uh, you know, telepath stuff like that with a gas mask on. It is more, and again, sorry, I love the insidious movies, so that is not a shot at Lin Shay, the queen, Like <laughs> literally love it, but like it is, you know, it's a formulaic way of you doing it. Uh, Gwen is not that to me. Gwen is a child coming to terms with these immense powers and having to, having to figure them out soon enough to save her brother versus just stepping in and saying, I'll take care of this, don't worry about it. I, I, I think that's the differentiation.
0: Yeah. And, and the, they do a good job at setting it up from the jump Um, instead of it sort of being convenient yeah. Um, because it's 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 set up at the jump. And then it's, as you said, like you said, Matt, she's discovering these powers and she really has no actual control over when she gets information. It just occurs. And I love the idea that she's praying about it. Not because I—I I don't necessarily think she believes in God in a traditional way, but she just doesn't know how to explain this thing that's happening to her. So the only thing she can think to do is pray and hope that something good happens with her powers. I just thought that, and it kind of creates sort of a tension, and it also tells you a little bit more about her character, um, both sort of like her relationship to her beliefs and what those powers mean, but also her relationship to her brother. Um, like once she, she realizes he's been taken, she is just like, "I've got to." if if i don't see something that helps it's going to be my fault you know right. like there's that that real strong tie that two of them have um on top of the fact that she's just a kickass character who yeah. like beats up the boys on the program uh, the, the playground for her brother um laron what how about you what, did, what was your take on sort of the use of the the psychic powers
1: um well before i comment on that i'd love the scene where after Vinny gets abducted and she's like cussing God out. She's like, God, what the fuck? Like literally like what, coming, mean, you know, I thought that was a great moment for her. Um, but I think she's, um, she's such a compelling character that, and also, I mean, and as an actress, I mean, again, uh, just because the character work here and the performances are so strong, all of the, the sillier elements of the story, I'm not really focusing on because I'm invested in the characters, but I thought that, um, but it was, it was used effectively. I like this symbiotic relation between her and you know uh, her connection to her brother. You know, like they're both having some kind of a paranormal you know experience in different ways, but all you know, you know, converging to the same cause. You know, so I felt like that was a very interesting use of it, or at least differentiating it. So we have a couple different ways. It's not so traditional. It's like. Many different elements of, of supernatural, you know, mm-hmm. kind of all in the same space, you know, and then finding a way for those those things to, you know, again, to become tethered. And I thought that was cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's the coolest thing. I mean, Matt, you said it really well earlier, how they're, they're kind of like working on their own ways. And then LaRon, to your point, kind of at the end, it all comes together. His visions kind of help him get where he needs to go so that the police can find him. And she actually, she's the one who finds him actually at the end of the film, which again, just a great sequence. Cops are flooding into this other house and she just sees him and stops dead great, cause great they, chemistry because
1: they could have easily just given her the full picture and that would have been lazy you know what mm-hmm. i mean that's where we wouldn't have cared as much about this if she had just seen where they were going see what hey the kid wants you to do this and find the rope and do this and whatever you know it's interesting they're having different communications about the same the same events the same the same victims so i thought that was cool that they're on two very different paths mm-hmm. but they're they're trying to you know accomplish the same to, goal. to find the find the middle yeah I, I also really appreciated
0: that the, the the vision she sees of the house number did not turn out to be the house that, he, that Finney was in. That was a great that was a great twist mm-hmm. because, you know, we're probably all like, yeah, yeah, OK, we know how this is going to go. Now the cops will show up there and save mm-hmm. the day. Something bad might happen, but everyone will be OK. But for it to be, oh, it's the wrong house right as he's you know, trying so hard to, to get out and fighting for his life. You're like, Oh my God, is he going to get out of this house in time when the cops are right there? Yeah. Um, just, just really awesome, awesome tension. And while we're on the note of psychics in films, I just, ha- I have to ask the question, uh, because I do think it's a, a fun trope, especially when used in, in a clever manner. What is your favorite use of psychics in uh, in film and why outside of the, the black phone, LaRon you're thinking,
1: I liked the sixth sense quite a bit just because it was something that wasn't, you don't know it's a trope because they're directing your attention away from mm-hmm. the fact that it's a trope, but, but I'm sure there's a psychic movie that I can. Well, it's, a,
0: I think the sixth sense is a great example. Hmm. Um, I mean, cause that, that is, uh, uh, that by, what was it? 1999. That had been, yeah, psychics had already been around, but they, yeah. you really, they, they, they're focusing on the, the horror, Element versus you know carry dropping buildings on stuff yeah, angle yeah yeah uh, Matt how about you what what's your sort of favorite use of the uh, the psychic trope
2: I I mean I, I just go back to Poltergeist just being one of the most familiar and being the one of the most like comforting I don't know I just love that actress playing uh, the psychic and Poltergeist and the voice iconic everything about it I, I just it's like comfort for me so it's weird to say like that's why I'm drawn to it uh, but also mentioning the Friday the Thirteenth movie. I, it's one of my least Friday the 13th movies, but using a psychic telepath, whatever you want to say, in a Jason film was such a huge swing that I can't do anything. But I respect the <laughs> ambition taken. I just couldn't hate that film anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, yeah Laurent, i tell you do what it. I did think of one. Drag Me to Hell. Um, it was oh, a, yeah. It's a fun one. Another Sam ramming film, but um, just the, yeah, that whole that whole movie is ridiculous, but I just—I I did really much love the how they kept playing with your expectations. She's following the orders of the vision she's been given, and then everything kind of derails and goes to a different direction. So yeah, there's my one.
0: I think I think that's good, Matt. Earlier, you mentioned uh, *Insidious*. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I because uh, because frankly, as much as I don't like that Jason movie either, I, the psychic does make it a really good guilty pleasure. As in, this movie's kind of terrible, but they save it with the gimmick that's really silly. At least that was my take on it. But I do really like the *Insidious* because it's sort of a modern take on a very age-old psychic trope of like the old lady who's sort of wise and spiritually in touch with stuff. Um, but she, yeah, she puts on a gas masks and kind of says these chants and kind of goes into the zone and can, uh, and especially in that movie, the way they, they realize the, the other world or the other side, um, the way the the visions kind of manifest themselves in that film, I thought was super duper fun. Um, but yeah, I, would say those are, I think other than that, the ones we've said on the table are probably a couple of my favorites. The sixth sense a bit is a big winner, uh, for me as well. Um, Okay, so let's uh, let's take it on to a final topic today, which is, as I alluded to uh, at the top of the show, this uh, the Derrickson C. Robert Cargill duo. Are these the next great horror tours? And uh, Matt, you mentioned earlier. uh, So Derrickson's first his directorial debut was a direct to DVD Hellraiser Inferno. That was came out in 2000. And then we get Exorcism Emily Rose, which is an excellent film. And then he teams up with Cargill and Sinister. And then, of course, they go on to do Doctor Strange together. And now we have the black phone. Derrickson has worked decades to sort of, I I really feel like, refine that craft as a horror director. And I think the thing that sticks out to me is he's never he's never too comfortable. Every like everything you see feels like either a level up or like we said here, even if it's you know, on par with in terms of the filmmaking, the way he uses it is so unique and thoughtful and different that it kind of levels it uh, up in a different way. So, um, Matt, when you watch the work of of Derrickson and the Black Phone, what what do you think are the things and the elements that set him apart from other horror directors working today? Uh, and again, feel free to use any example from the film, spoilers and all.
2: I think it, it, the big key for me is that uh, you know Derrickson Cargill are coming from a place of love and adoration for the horror genre. And one of the first examples, just using the telepath as as an example, actually, the way they maneuver that character arc and the way that they use the misdirect of the house when Gwen thinks she's figured the house number out and we think we have the easy ending. Like, yeah, that's the easy ending in so many horror films. That's the easy way of figuring it out. And the misdirect that it's the wrong house and those powers still aren't as good as Gwen thinks they are. Is Derrickson and Cargill going like but we've seen this so many times. Why are we going to do the same thing? Like we're going to take the tropes that you all know. We're going to subvert them. We're going to do them in fun ways. Cause I mean, sinister ends with a jump scare. Like that is so sacrilege and horror. Like it just ending (laughs) on an in your face jump scare, but they are so good at setting everything up as a haunted house film throughout it. And the goodwill that they earn throughout sinister, you actually are like, all right, I'm going to let this pass. And like, there's two films that have ever done that for me. And that's Krampus and that's sinister. So like for <laughs> them to get that goodwill is a huge thing, but it all comes back to the fact that like what Derrickson as a director and how he can take Cargill's, uh, you know, words and elevate them. And one of the, the other example I'm going to use here and his vision is this is a largely single place setting film taking place in the grabber's basement. And another director would simply see the basement As four walls that never change. And like you're stuck in this room. And what Derrickson does is he, he shows you everything so methodically and he only shows you what you need to see so well that the size of the room changes for me. And when it needs to be big and when Finney needs to explore the room and figure things out and, you know, further his escape plan, that room feels massive. And it's like, okay, we have space to breathe. I don't feel like this is a closed off room and we're seeing the same, the same landscape over and over again. But then when Cargill and uh, Derrickson, sorry, uh, when Derrickson wants you to feel the horror and the dread, and he wants that basement to feel like claustrophobic, he just makes the camera do things with like focus and going real close on Finney or real close on Ethan Hawke. And all of a sudden, like the walls close in on everyone and you just feel claustrophobic. So like he's taking a single setting, but he treats it in a way that is so developed and so like conscious of how to kind of make us feel along with just this. And like, that's just a setting. That's it. I'm not even talking about performances. He gets all that thing. So like, I just think he puts more thought into the things that other filmmakers should be thinking about. And for horror specifically, that goes a huge long way because it's easy to do what somebody else has done in horror. It's easy to set up a haunted house as a billion other directors have. But if you're James Wan though, if you're Scott Derrickson, you look at what has been set up over and over again and you say, how am I going to make this my own? How am I going to redefine the horror genre at the moment? And how am I going to really like take this to the next level? And that is just the mark of a very efficient and a very prolific director. And I do think, you know, Cargill and Dirk's working together to echo what we said before. I really hope they stay around the horror genre because we really need a constant city stream of things that are accessible and frightening and just big, kind of massive event films, and yet this is made for all of $18 million. Well
0: we've got good news for you, Matt. Uh, something I, did, I forgot to note earlier, but I just want to call it out here. Uh, we're recording this the Monday after the film came out. It's an $18 million budgeted horror film. It made $23 million in the domestic box office on its opening weekend, which for a horror film is good. That's not from some sort of pre existing IP. That's a big that's deal. big That's big. big. I mean, because it's it's, it's, you know, and I'm kind of hoping the hope is uh, word of mouth from Matt's review from this podcast is like it it has legs, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and and people go back and and see it either a second or third time or convince their friends to go see it a first time. Um, So anyway, I'm 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 very frankly, after watching the box office for the last 18 months, and I know the pandemic was a huge factor. It was pretty much perpetually bad news. It's like, hey, a Marvel movie made tons of money. Fast and Furious movie made tons of money. And a Disney movie made uh, an animated Disney movie did all right money. A Pixar movie tanks, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. like, it's just, even the, the, like the Pixar's are, are not doing good. Mm -hmm. So to see that, like we have something that feels again, based on a, a short story, but, For all intents and purposes, I would agree with you, Matt. More of an original horror film making this much money. It's a success story. It is a huge success story. Uh, Give us more of that. Give us more of everything, everywhere, all at once. And and I'm feeling a lot more hopeful all of a sudden. Um, But, Matt, one thing I wanted to to circle back on what you were saying about what makes them such a compelling duo. My favorite thing about Sinister that I think, as you noted, works really well here is how they – their their knowledge and the tropes and how confident they are and how to execute them in a thoughtful, surprising way. Here's the thing about and I actually, gosh, I have to go dig up my review. I think it was in, yeah in 2012 when the film came out. I wrote it down. One of the things about Sinister that's compelling is it really it's a pretty gruesome, it's a pretty spooky movie. The atmosphere and everything, but like at the end of the day, it is like you said, a fairly tropish horror movie. But the thing that they focus on is the motivation. Why would someone be so stupid to keep their family in this house why would they can keep watching these films like mm-hmm. why because he's greedy because he's a person who's desperate who wants to he, he he longed for the fame he used to have and when he put that motivation in there it really changes the dynamics of the story because your main character suddenly is his own worst enemy. And he's also the worst enemy of his family. Cause he's active, he's keeping them in a very dangerous situation um, for, you know, sort of protect his own ego uh, and his own vision for the, for the future. And I think what they do here, is, to your point, Matt is yes, we do have a psychic. Um, we do have a kid trapped in a basement, but the way in which they, we receive that information adds to the suspense it's not just a hey how it's not just room how do we get out of this again room is a great movie yeah you know so point that out but it's not just a how do we get out of this this house movie it's oh my gosh these kids are talking on the phone what happened to them why are they talking to him how is this going to help finney on his journey right and um again sort of a trope but it adds a lot more complexity and layers to it uh, that i think is would be missing um if not uh you know through other if if this was done written and directed by a different duo
1: It gives those tropes meaning, even though they're like, yeah, this is a device, but it's being used effectively here in this context, you know, because um, because it's like we've remixed it in a way where it, it serves the story rather than like, you know, just negates, you know, lazy writing, you know, like so I thought that was you know, a cool way of doing it for sure.
0: And, and I mean, like Leroy, what do you think just in terms of like the way Cargill and, uh, Derrickson kind of utilize those trips and like, w- is there anything else that you would say makes them sort of an exceptional duo?
1: I feel like, um, I mean, uh, he, he said it very well, but I think uh, the attention to detail for sure here, um, again, with setting and tone is really big. Um, but their films don't feel modern and that's what I really like. It's like, it it's, they're conjuring a feeling of dread, that we felt in seventies films or we felt like in Halloween or we felt in like, and you can tell that they've studied these films and they found a way to try and, and, and utilize that to their advantage without making their films look super slick and super on, uh, you know, of the now it's like, they've found the thing that worked in horror films that a lot of directors just can't access, you know, or aren't able to, or try to, you know, or find, you know, cheaper ways to get around to do, you know, so, And that's, and that's, I mean, a testament to their, again, their adoration for the genre. Sign us up for more.
0: uh, It sounds like Um, good stuff. Um, Well, guys, I think we are about out of time, uh, but I did just want to give everyone a chance to chime in with the final word. Um, uh, Matt, is there anything you would like to add about the Black Phone before we wrap up today's conversation?
2: James Ransom. We have not mentioned Mister Ransom yet, and I think he has a wonderful little part. As uh, we're in spoiler territory, right? I can kind of, yeah, Yeah, he's like the conspiracy theorist uh, brother, correct? I believe, if I'm correct, yeah, yeah,
0: he's the brother. He's the brother of the grabber,
2: right? So it's just this amazing little note that in this dire, bleak, horrifying film, we still get a little bit of comedic relief. And James Ransom, I think, is such an underrated talent. And you know, we've seen him in the it. Uh, you know the it adaptation of late, um, and in so many other films, uh, Ty West in a Valley of Violence, just like down the list, where he has stood out in these indie roles, uh, and I just think he deserves more credit. So, also amazing death sequence, <laughs> just, just oh, a, a plus, a plus death sequence. So again, we're in spoiler territory. Uh, I hope I didn't just ruin it for you, but anyway, So he gets my he gets my last word.
0: I, I just gotta, I, I've gotta, I, I've gotta call that out though. Talking about great filmmaking. The moment in which you and his character figure out exactly what's going on at the exact same time, which is amazing because usually, you know, you're thinking you would you would figure it out if it was not as well written and as well uh, paced as this. You would have figured that out before. Right. Um, But it's literally like the second he starts to relook at the map and you're like, wait a second. Wait a second. Is (laughs) he uh, what's he thinking?
1: Oh, wait. My brother has a black (laughs) truck, black fan. Wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then the, the death sequence was awful and yeah. awesome at the same time yeah
2: yeah
1: that, that was a real treat lauren anything else you want to add before we wrap up oh just see it man i just want i want horror movies to do better at the box office this is a good success story but it, it, it'd be great if you know you told your friends to go see it you know to you know keep that box office number you know at least in the top five for a bit here so while we'll, you know give this film some traction
0: let's make it another everywhere everything everyone wants top 10 for like I don't know, <laughs> yeah. fifteen weeks or whatever. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, see it on the big screen, as always. Say, I know it's really tempting. I have some friends who are like, "Oh, I've got a good setup. I'll wait until it's at home." No, see this in the theater if you feel safe doing so. Of course, uh, see it in the theater. Go with some friends. I think this is a great friend horror movie watch, and just have a good time. Sit back and watch some master filmmakers tell you a great story. There's just so much stuff about this film, and uh, if you do it, we might get more. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is our review of The Black Phone. Uh, Really quickly, I just want to give uh, both of our guests a chance to shout out exactly where you can keep up with them and their work online. Uh, Matt Donato, thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. I've been trying to find the right opportunity to to work with you or talk to you on a podcast for a long time. And I'm I'm so grateful that you uh, took the time out of your Monday evening to talk with us about The Black Phone. So
2: thanks for joining. And where can people follow you online? You can follow me at Donato Bomb on Letterboxd, uh, Twitter and Instagram. And that is where I will tweet and talk about all the many sites that I write for, which are just endlessly a revolving door. So follow the social media. I will do my best to control the chaos.
0: Uh, Laurent Chapman, where can people keep up with you and your work online?
1: Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Cine underscore man, or you can follow me on Instagram at Black Movie Magic OKC.
0: Awesome. And uh, likewise, you can find me on Letterboxd. Um, I believe I am, yeah, C-Masters Talk. That is Letter C-Masters Talk, as well as my Twitter page. Also C-Masters Talk, Letter C-Masters Talk. Um, and if you can keep up with all of our work over at the Cinemetropolis, Metropolis, especially for our Oklahoma audience, we just got done doing tons and tons of Dead Center Film Festival coverage. Uh, we had a really good talk uh, with LeBron Chapman as Part of that as uh, the Pride programmer of the festival, uh, where we spoke with the uh, writer director of Mama Bears, a really terrific documentary that I think you should check out. Uh, we also just reviewed probably the harshest review I've given in a long time with Jurassic World Dominion. That was still a fun combo. I, I don't really like to be super negative on pods, but. Uh, it was bad but it was still it calls for it it calls for it. and hopefully the podcast was more enjoyable than the movie for everyone else um so yeah lots of stuff to cover that, that we are we have over at thecinematropolis.com you can also follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis uh, or on twitter at the all right ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us uh, we'll catch you again next time when we return for a review of thor love and thunder and that'll be coming to you the week of july 11th don't miss it